In South Australia, on the York Peninsula, sitting about 20 kilometres apart from each other on the Copper Coast, there are two tiny heritage-listed towns called Munta and Wallaroo. It's a rather picturesque part of the world. It's big sky country, it's remote, it's flat and dry, and it's peppered with dozens of tiny cottages and old hollowed out sandstone buildings all across the landscape. Relics from a time more than a century ago when the Copper Coast was truly living up to its name. Between 1861, when copper was first discovered in the region, to the closure of the mines in 1923, the Munta and Wallaroo mines were the biggest industrial site in South Australia, and at its peak in the 1870s, Munta's population numbered over 12,000, making it the second biggest city in the state, just behind Adelaide. But this wealth, as with so many other mining towns throughout history and around the world, did not trickle down to those who were actually pulling the minerals out of the ground. Living conditions in Munta and Wallaroo were deplorable, with the biggest problem being the lack of fresh water. There was no pipeline to the towns until the 1890s, so before that the people had to rely on rainwater which, as anyone from South Australia can probably tell you, is not the most reliable thing. There was one poorly managed dam and very few personal tanks. People were so desperate for water that during storms they would scoop it out of puddles in the ground as it fell. This of course led to severely contaminated water which led to disease which led to death. Epidemics of typhoid, cholera, diphtheria, they all swept through the towns at various times and in 1873 alone there were more than 327 burials at the Munta Cemetery with an additional three to 400 unmarked graves belonging to children. Miners' children. The children of parents who were killing themselves making Munta Mining Company rich. Parents who couldn't afford treatment for their families, let alone a gravestone for their dead kids. While there had already been unrest following the wave of preventable deaths that had just swept the region, the catalyst for this strike came about on the 2nd of April, when a notice was put up that read, in part, the directors resolve that all wages at Munta Mines shall be reduced. Munta Mine immediately went on strike, and a week later, Wallaroo Mine joined them. Members from both mines met at Bald Head, a location halfway between the two towns, in an event that had speeches and songs and its own band, but that's to be expected after all, I mean, what self-respecting mine doesn't have a band? Despite attempts to break the strike with scab labour and with trooper intervention, the miners held firm and on the 15th of April the directors relented with everybody back to work by the 21st. The legacy from this that most people talk about is the fact that this action was the beginning of the formation of the United Tradesmen's Society, which later became the Labour League of South Australia. But what people don't talk about was the incredible moment halfway through the strike when a committee of women discovered that scabs had wormed their way into Moonta Mines. The following was published in the Murrumbidgee District Advertiser on the 29th of April 1874. The miners on strike at the Copper Mines in South Australia have had recourse to extreme measures to enforce their demands upon their employers and are aided and abetted by women as the following extract from the South Australian Register of a proceeding which recently took place at the Moonta Mine will show. 
Whilst an open-air meeting of the miners was being held in the evening, it was proposed that they should go to the mine and sweep everything before dark. With a cheer, the vast Concorde then turned and proceeded to the Matter Engine House, headed by a strong muster of women who had collected in the meantime and evidently awaited the word of command, which they took up from the hurrahs of the men who were somewhat surprised at their presence. After gaining minutes without much obstruction, the women compelled the driver and the fireman to cease working and ordered them to clear out at once, which, having been done, the lights were pulled out, the engines made secure, and the fire drawn, followed by vociferous cheering. The next place of attack was known as Taylor's, where on arrival was found a large fire, evidently placed in front of the door for the purpose of being able to witness the events from within the engine room. The women, as on the previous occasion, proceeded to the door and found it to be locked. While inside, there were seen through the windows the manager, Mr. Higgs, with the engine driver and stoker, evidently awaiting the first assault. When it was found that access could not be had from within, the women, armed with mallee poles, burst open the door. A general rush of resistance from within was met with this onward progress from without, but the latter, being the stronger party, compelled those within to retreat, and immediately the engine house was filled with a formidable array representing the petticoat government. They completely bundled the refugees out the front door when they proceeded to tie down the engine amidst tremendous cheering. Everything secured here, a stampede was then commenced for the other engines, and at Hughes they accomplished their purpose without much difficulty. A telegram, forwarded by the miners to their fellow workmen who were also on strike at the Wallaroo mine, was read at a public meeting held there, where it laconically announced to the action of the women as follows. All works have stopped. Engines and all. The women swept everything clean. Now this here is a pretty extraordinary event. A whole bunch of rough, angry, political working class women armed themselves with poles and sticks, kicked down the front door of the mines and shut the whole thing down. Now this not only contributed to a win for their own little towns and families, but it contributed to the foundation of a massive organised labour movement in their state and later on the country. But if you were to visit Munta or Wallaroo's websites, or read almost all books published on the matter, you'd be hard pressed to find a single thing about the petticoat government. A century later, and the actions of these women's and the impressed supportive way those actions were reported has also been swept clean. What is really depressing about all this being swept clear is that it was hardly a single incident. It wasn't just some random disorganised flurry of activity, but rather it was the beginning of a fantastic chapter in working class history. Almost two decades later, and nearly 500 kilometres away from the Copper Coast to the Silver City, this legacy lived on in a new batch of women. The land that Broken Hill sits on belongs to the Barkinja and the Wiliankali people, though there was little human habitation in that particular area due to a lack of permanent water sources. It was for the same reason that European invasion happened relatively later. At first the land was considered for little more than sheep farming, as was much of Australia, but when Charles Rash discovered silver there in 1883, people suddenly found a reason to go out to what is quite literally the middle of nowhere. 
At first, people went to Silverton, for the silver obviously, but when zinc and lead were found about 30 kilometres away, the tide of people moved. Within five years, over 6,000 people had now gathered around the Broken Hill, which was actually a series of hills that looked broken down the middle, of which now none remains, having all been mined away. And out of those 6,000 people, only 900 were women, or just about 15%. There were few proper stone or wood buildings, with many people living in weatherboard and galvanised iron huts, or just plain old canvas tents. Living in pretty wretched conditions as they sat on top of and scratched desperately at the largest zinc lead ore deposit in the world. To give you an idea how big this mine is, there are more trucks and traffic lights underground in Broken Hill than above. And with the workers came the bosses, the Syndicate of Seven, who would go on to launch the Broken Hill Proprietary Company in 1885, which in turn would go on to become the largest mining company in the world. As the bosses mobilised, so did the workers, and one year later, in 1886, at a meeting at Silverton, it was decided that they should form their own branch of the Amalgamated Miners Association of Australia, or the AMA. They soon adopted their now famous motto, United we stand, divided we fall. By 1888, Broken Hill was declared a municipality, and the aldermen, with all the zeal of a team playing Minecraft, set about structuring the town into long, parallel streets named after minerals. Crystal, cobalt, oxide, chloride, sulphide, bromide, and of course, the main street, Argent. Miners divided their time between digging below and ordering on top as halls and pubs were built, refuse cleaned away and burnt, and many corrugated iron houses that would later become an iconic image of Broken Hill began to sprout across the landscape. As the mining companies and the shareholders began to metaphorically dig themselves into the surface of the earth, it was the workers who were physically providing the raw capital to sustain the fledgling town. They began to resent the mining companies for the conditions they lived and worked under, for not recognising the AMA, and for having to work with non-unionists. At that time, it was estimated that there were seven unionists for every non-union, or blackleg. And while there was strength in numbers, they felt, rightly so, that the blacklegs took advantage of the union's betterment of the town and workplace without contributing anything to the effort. On the 7th of November 1889, the trade union members turned out for Broken Hill's first strike. Five days later, on the 12th of November, the following advertisement appeared in the Barrier Minor. A number of Broken Hill women are very anxious to do something towards supporting the men now out on strike, and a meeting for women only will be held at the Masonic Hotel tonight at 7.30pm. The president will be the chair, Mr. T.C. Tate, the proprietor of the hotel, has kindly given us the use of his new hall, just to the side, for the use of the women's brigade. All matrons and maids who are in sympathy with the union are requested to attend. The Southern Queensland Bulletin on the 23rd of November 1889 would later report about the meeting with all the tone that one might expect from a Queensland newspaper from the 1880s. From our Broken Hill exchanges, we get the most amusing details of the movements of the Women's Brigade and their views of blacklegs in, in connection with the late miners' strike. At a meeting, the Brigade, 400 women being present with two men only acting respectively as Chairman and Vice-Chairman, the first exciting incident was an attempt of a blackleg arranged in female attire to gain admission. 
but the sharp eyes of the female pickets quickly detected the fraud and the men had a hot run for home. Some 13 or more women delivered stirring addresses. One speaker said she would be sorry to be married to such a mean-spirited thing like a blackleg. A Mrs Whitford was inclined to think that a blackleg had never possessed a mother. A third lady orator advocated the brooming out of the obvious things. A Mrs Field believed in moral suasion and prayer. This sweet sentiment was brought up by an indignant Mrs Champion who knew the blacklegs to be dead to all sense of manhood and lost to all feelings of shame. They had an impudence to live although they only existed on other men's courage and brains. She would make an example of one of them. And here voices cried out tar and feathers. A Mrs Simmons felt equal to any emergency. Words were wasted on such creatures. Mrs Ivory felt very strongly on the question. She thought that if only she could get her hands on one of these cowardly fellows that she could make mash of him. She was only a little woman, but she had a big conceit in her own powers, and if all the women were of her mind, there would not be a black leg in Broken Hill tomorrow. The ladies now grew desperately excited, and the two men present were powerless to quell the storm. Hundreds of voices rang out at once, and the principles of unionism, the merits of whitewash, tar and feathers, moral suasion, the pangs of poverty, and a score of other subjects were discussed at one and the same moment. The reporter might think that these women were desperately excited, but they were simply participating in public debate in the same way any man in the union might have. They could see clearly how their personal home lives and the struggle with work were all connected. Hard labour has never been the sole dominion of men. Poor health was prevalent and affected everyone as the dust from the mines rose and covered the whole town. Food was hard tack beef and tea which led to malnutrition and scurvy and stunted children's growth. Poverty was choking a town that was sitting on the richest iron ore deposit in the world. All you had in that vast flat heat was the person standing next to you. At the very least, you could join your damn union. The Women's Brigade held true to their word, and the very next day at the crack of dawn they arose and marched to the closed mines, armed with brooms, mops, axe handles, tar and whitewash, and set about proving that their words from the previous night weren't just that. They attacked the black legs with a zeal and precision that had the barrier advertiser label the incident as the March of the Amazons, as they beat, stripped, tarred and whitewashed any scabs that they could find. At first, Richard Sleeth, the president of the AMA, applauded these actions, then literally the very next day retracted that statement and instead asked the menfolk to keep their wives in check as their actions reflected poorly upon the union. The women didn't seem to mind these requests for civility and neither apparently did their husbands, as 200 members of the brigade stayed out the following night, armed, alert and patrolling the streets for any blackleg who was foolish enough to try and go out again. The strike of 1889 was resolved within a week, but the energy of the Women's Brigade carried on into the strikes that would follow, in particular, three years later, in 1892. Despite the continued success of the company, conditions around the town had deteriorated. In the frenzy to dig up as much ore as possible, massive piles of tailings had formed all across the gridded town. Tailings are the worthless dirt and dust left over once the ore is extracted, 
And while there had been plans to eventually clear this out and do this away from the town, so far none of those plans had eventuated, and some piles were now more than 12 metres in height. Fine dust from the extraction process and the tailings coated the town and led to widespread cases of lead poisoning and pneumosarcosis. Those who had never even entered a mine began to suffer and die from the horrific miner's lung. Conditions themselves in the mines were absolutely awful. Men could work up to 12 hours a day in stifling, dangerous conditions. It was dark and cramped and hot, with deadly dust covering them from head to foot, in their mouths, their nose and their eyes. It was described as breathing in powdered glass, making men's lungs bleed, and it was inescapable. Overmining and poorly built support structures led to cave-ins that crushed limbs, broke backs and buried men alive. Australia had just seen some of its first and largest industrial action in 1890, but as both the Shearer's strike as well as the maritime disputes were defeated, the strength of unionism in general took a blow, and this weakening, coupled with a faltering economy, led to the syndicate believing that this was as good a time as any to push back on union influence. The AMA were now helping to build the town in ways that the syndicate did not always approve, with several members of the council now either unionists or union sympathisers, who had just previously attempted to have the council race increased for mine owners. People knew the bosses were mobilising against them. Before the announcement of the termination of previous industrial agreements, several prominent union leaders were sacked on flimsy pretenses, and there were heavy hints that a wage cut was incoming, while weekly hours would be increasing. On 30th of June 1892, unions were formally notified that the previous agreement was null and void and that contract labour would be allowed and that pay would be cut. The company cried poverty, insisting that it was being done to save the business and for the betterment of the town, people should just look after themselves. In response to this, 6,000 people gathered on the 3rd of July, calling for immediate strike action. On the 16th of August, the mining companies issued a statement that the mines would now be open to non-union labour from August the 25th. It would later be known as the fateful 25th. In the early morning, as strike breakers and city police poured into the hill, the AMA and the women's brigade stood shoulder to shoulder, the women of course armed with their brooms. The tiring and feathering didn't happen so much, but the beatings were unrestrained and captured wonderfully in some rather famous sketches. The imported police in particular attracted scorn and abuse, with cries such as, Go back to Surrey Street, you plague rat, ringing out from the crowd. As the morning's frenzy died out, the union took to the street, marching in protest, accompanied by about a hundred women. Later that day, 500 women marched, led by Richard Sleeth and Mrs C. Poole, both of whom were on horseback, with a brass band bringing up the rear. When the procession reached the Central Reserve, thousands gathered to listen as several women with, quote, assistance from the Cerner sex, were hoisted onto the back of wagons and each in turn gave impassioned speeches that were met with riotous applause. Once again, there was a striking difference between how the officials reacted to all this female involvement and to how the miners did. Richard Sleeth once again tried to dissuade the women from marching, this time trying to warn the men of the dangers their women folk would encounter at these rallies, as there was a high chance of rough behaviour and these ladies might be pushed or struck, which, considering said delicate ladies were armed and ready to rumble anyway, seems a little condescending even for the 1880s. 
The women attracted scorn from the Silver Age newspaper too, who called them, quote, the females, as they hardly deserve to be called women. In a cold and dehumanizing sentiment that unfortunately is hardly out of place in some of the more unsavory sections of the internet today. But reality was that the women were not only welcomed by the men on strike, but they were encouraged and celebrated. Mary Lee, who was the vice president of the Working Women's Trade Union in Adelaide, later wrote this about the subject. This strike has one feature which renders it more profoundly interesting than any of its predecessors here or elsewhere as far as I know, which must secure it in a prominent and distinguished page when the history of these colonies shall be written. It is that the women of Broken Hill are the first great body of working women who have raised their voices in united protest against the glaring injustices that the present constitution will not allow them a voice in framing the laws under which they are compelled to live. It is deeply humiliating that they should be sorrowfully and abjectly obliged to appeal to the clemency, etc., for the attention to their woes and distresses, which, as an important part of the state, they should be entitled to demand as a right. And the women's brigade knew that. Many spoke of the effects of contract work in other parts of the country, of sicknesses that wouldn't heal, of hunger that couldn't be sated of their menfolk broken from insanely hard work that was apparently so important to the company, yet yielded almost no compensation. But as passionate and dedicated as they were, they were at this point unsuccessful. Several male activists, including Richard Sleeth, were arrested and jailed, and from then onwards the strike faltered and finally collapsed on the 8th of November. Confidence in the ability of the union to have any real sway over the bosses was shattered, and the miners now joined the shearers and the wharfies in a world where workers' rights were almost non-existent. Over a thousand known union members had to leave Broken Hill, punished by the mining bosses who now refused to hire them, and any remaining unionists now had to go underground, more or less, or risk the same treatment. Hours again increased, and wages were cut by 10%. It was 16 years before Broken Hill saw its next wave of action. Union activity had now dwindled to almost nothing, and the once famed women's brigade was now numbered at just 21. But when the age-old threat of disease, poverty and wage cuts rose once more, so did they. In 1908, a mass meeting was called, attended by both men and women, and one Tom Mann, a British trade unionist and socialist who was later the subject of the now famous Tom Mann trains. You see, Mann was forbidden from giving public speeches in New South Wales halfway through the next strike movement, and when he couldn't speak there, workers from Broken Hill travelled by train to the New South Wales-South Australian border to hear him speak there instead. Mann was fond of Broken Hill, and the hill returned the sentiment. He'd made the journey in 1902 when he'd helped organise the previously weakening unions, as well as speaking passionately and eloquently on the merits of socialism, something that the people in Broken Hill heartily agreed with as they'd already been fighting for such a thing before labels were even put to it. One lasting institute was established a year later, the Barrier Social Democratic Club, or the Demo, which still stands to this day, even though it was to weather some pretty intense storms. The first public meeting men attended upon his return in 1908 was one solely consisting of women, 
who were now so revered and recognised as the backbone of any radical movement in the hill that the union provided childcare so that the ladies could attend. The lady editor wrote glowingly about that, stating, Our men, God bless them, are fighting, but they don't mind minding babies while we confer. Later, when Mann spoke at a gathering of 5,000, he not only called for a vote from the unionists, but also a vote from the women. When a sea of hands was raised in favour of a walk-off, a massive cheer not only came from the women, but from the men who knew that they were supported all the way. It began on the 1st of January 1909. The miners called it a lockout, the companies called it a strike, and soon tensions and bitter memories rose and led to violent clashes between the miners and police, many of whom were once again brought in specially from Sydney and Melbourne to crush resistance. This flood of coppers incensed a town that had been told many times by the state that they were just too isolated, too small, too far away to be sent any doctors or teachers, but a sudden flood from Surrey Street was easily had. 28 men were arrested in the fray, including Tom Mann. Later that night, the old Whitehead boarding house, the one that had been billeting those imported police, mysteriously caught fire and burnt to the ground. The power of striking caught everyone's attention that year, and it went beyond the mines. The Methodist choir went on strike, refusing to sing for a visiting soloist who brought her own accompaniment. Even the boys from North Primary School went on strike, the fife and drum band refusing to play in protest against their headmaster's stance on the matter. And throughout it all was the Women's Brigade, back again, though this time missing the historic broom. They wielded their power in the shops as they refused to serve any man who could not provide a union badge. They had no qualms about insulting police and eventually Mrs Gibson, a local socialist, spent two months in jail rather than pay a fine for her abuse of a cop, though her jail time probably had more to do with her politics than her insults. Their power and influence was no longer mocked or underestimated, and the conservative newspaper The Barrier Minor tried desperately to keep them away from the action, as they printed in an article humorously titled Women's World. It would be well for women to remember that her special mission is to create a beautiful home life for her husband and family first, and then, if time allows, and her mental aspirations and ability go beyond that scope, she may seek to improve the social and moral conditions of less favoured humans. However, Unionist George Dale, who had witnessed the battles and the marches, had this to say. The women folk that evening at least got some of their own back, for whenever a cop was observed during the march, he either received a backhander from a woman on passing or was spat upon. This happened not once, but hundreds of times during that memorable tramp through the city streets. And, under the circumstances, show me the working man that did not and does not applaud such acts, and I will show you a creature who lives but to creep and cringe, and knows but little of the history of his class or the damnable actions of its historic enemies. After a bitter five months, the strike ended but neither side was truly satisfied. A few years later, World War I struck. At the beginning, Broken Hill, like much of the country, lost itself to patriotic hysteria, and they churned out insane amounts of lead for bullets to be used a world away, they churned out so much that they poisoned the town to such a degree 
that it is still felt to this day. As lead poisoning skyrocketed, the call came once again for an eight-hour working day, in direct opposition to the companies and now the government, who both demanded longer and longer hours underground, all for the Great War. Against huge pressure to do their bit, the unions voted to stop work early each Saturday, changing their 48-hour week to 44, a move that was eventually recognised and implemented permanently after seven months of action and support. Once that victory was had, attention quickly turned to the anti-war movement, particularly the case around conscription. Six out of every ten people Australia sent overseas was killed or wounded in World War I. Six out of ten. And the government wanted to introduce conscription. The people of Broken Hill simply could not believe, as they worked and died to provide ammunition for a needless bloody conflict, as they saw the broken minds and bodies of those who returned, as the list of the dead grew and grew, they could not believe the utterly insane selfishness that was coming from Parliament, as they were told that they weren't giving enough. Conservative women were quick to jump on the conscription bandwagon and were applauded by those in power for the pathetic gesture of giving a white feather to any man who refused to be blown apart in a foreign land. Broken Hill women, however, were of a much different mind. On the 23rd of July 1916, the Labour Volunteer Army, or the LVA, was formed, along with its sister, the LVA Women's Corps. They all took an oath not to serve as a conscript, industrial or military, even though it may lead to my punishment or death. Imprisonment was swift for many male activists, most notably Tom Barker, a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, who was jailed for a year for his now famous anti-conscription poster that read, To arms! Capitalists, parsons, politicians, landlords, newspaper editors and other stay-at-home patriots, your country needs you in the trenches. Workers, follow your masters. Women agitators were welcomed and celebrated, and during the latter half of the war, many visited Broken Hill, including Mrs. Bella Lavender, touted as one of the most intellectual women of the Commonwealth, as well as the famous British suffragette Adela Pankhurst. Women attended classes held by Alex Coogan, classes that were aimed to teach women how to become great orators in their own right and how to organise alongside the union. Frances Mortimer, who often spoke at LVA rallies, was fired from her job by the secretary of the Jockeys Club. The union organised such a crushing boycott of the club that the secretary in turn quit and left town. Once again, these actions attracted attention far away from the quarters of Broken Hill, and the Sydney newspaper Direct Action wrote about the movement. One specially gratifying feature of the aforesaid organisation is its ladies section, which for enthusiasm is second to none. Every class conscious working man must metaphorically take off his hat to the noble women of Broken Hill, as I do, and the earnest hope is that when the present anti-conscription crusade is over, that these same women will study the principles of the IWW and join hands with the men for the overthrow of the system which denies women no less than men that liberty of self-expression which is life. A motion to introduce conscription failed not only once, but twice within 14 months. To this day, Broken Hill is incredibly proud of the role it played in that victory. The last major industrial action in Broken Hill took place between May 1919 and November 1920, 
and it has been considered one of the most difficult, bitter and important battles in Australian labour history. It's since been called, appropriately enough, the Big Strike. The issues were the same as always. Backbreaking hours, unsafe conditions, health concerns, low pay. The fever and organisation from the anti-conscription movement transformed once again into union action, and now that action received outside support that had not been previously available. Technology and communication helped ease the burden of isolation, and wireless now meant that the AMA could be supported from afar by the Australian Coal and Shell Employers Federation, who provided the funds for over 20,000 pay packets. Lead was also at an all-time high now, so the workers held an incredible amount of power because scab labour simply would not be enough to produce what the bosses wanted. And lastly, very importantly, Percy Brookfield was on their side. Brookfield was a radical member of the New South Wales Parliament who originally ran with the Australian Labour Party before joining the Industrial Socialist Labour Party. He was quoted as saying, War is the greatest curse the workers of the world have ever had to contend with. I will advocate for peace, not caring whether I annoy or please. As irritating as he might have been to conservatives at the time, he also held the balance of power and was crucial in changing the industrial laws of the state. But still, even with all that on their side, the workers of Broken Hill were in for the hardest battle yet. In some ways, the big strike was more subdued. There were no huge street brawls, little jailing, and the women were no longer seen ready to tar and feather. But there was a grim determination, a sense of do or die that held the town together as BHP attempted to strangle the last vestiges of resistance out of the workers, and the workers made one last push for what was rightfully theirs. For 18 long months the workers held out, even as money became non-existent, as food became so scarce that many people lived on nothing more than potatoes and onions. As people suffered malnutrition, as infant mortality rates shot up, as those awaiting compensation for the terrible illnesses they'd contracted from working in those mines died slow, painful deaths, the workers still held firm. One of the main things that got them through this time was community. Choirs, bands, plays, all organised and put on by those who had little else. And women continued to be the major foundation that this was built on, often meeting together at the demo in the Socialist Hall, sitting underneath the IWW banners, working on sewing, cooking, sharing resources, quietly waiting for that eight-hour day. As a year went past, the strength of the smaller unions around town slowly began to collapse, and little by little people began to return to work with no better conditions. But the AMA continued to hold out until finally, in September 1920, all demands were met. Wages were increased to the point where those in Broken Hill were now the best paid workers in Australia. Conditions in the mines improved so dramatically and the unions had such control over further changes that there wasn't cause for concern until 1886, 66 years later. Workers' compensation for illnesses, injury and death was finally granted not only to the miners themselves, but to all those who were living around the town. And, most significantly, the eight-hour working day, something that only a decade previously had been considered a fantastical dream, was implemented not only in Broken Hill, but state and soon nationwide. Hours reduced by the simple act of suspending Saturday work and creating that wonderful thing that we now call a weekend.
Between 1889 and 1920, Broken Hill experienced four major strikes. And through that struggle, the workers of that remote, neglected outback town ended up not only shaping a brand new future for themselves, but radically changed conditions for all working Australians. The importance of the Women's Brigade cannot be understated in this, yet its story has been almost lost. Their influence is still seen across the hill, murals depicting women and children about to go on a march under a union banner. Another piece of street arch shows a woman in silhouette waving a red flag. There's even a memorial to women in general at the centre of Broken Hill. It reads, This memorial is dedicated to the women of Broken Hill who have stood by their men during troubled industrial times. Yes, it's good that there's some recognition, but at the same time, does it go far enough? On the memorial, there is an image of a wife and mother, her husband by her side, her children at her feet, but not one of a staff-wielding activist or a passionate orator. We know that they stood by their men, but they don't address how they also stood for themselves. Writings on this subject are woefully few and far between. The best I found came from the writings of the incredible Sandra Bloodworth, or from Broken Hill historian Richard Kearns, or straight from the horse's mouth, old digitised newspapers. Direct action that comes from the organisation and mobilisation of working class women will always be shunted to the side, lost and forgotten, because it disrupts the narrative that if you're a nice and reasonable young lady, the boss will be nice and reasonable back. But for every Australian enjoying the weekend, for every woman who now holds some position of corporate power, for all those who think that they got there on their own, just know that what you have, you owe to a group of isolated outback women who, a century ago, armed themselves, banded together, defied the law, and put everything on the line for what, at the time, was no more than just the idea of a better future. <laughs>